Dyad Podcast, produced by Dyad Strategies, the podcast about research, trends, and critical issues in the fraternity and sorority industry. I'm your host, Gentry McCreary. At the 2021 Association of Fraternity and Sorority Advisors Annual Meeting, the association awarded the inaugural Dissertation of the Year Award to Dr. Bianca Williams. Her dissertation, An Exploration of the Retention and Attrition Factors for the Campus-Based Fraternity and Sorority Student Affairs Professional, takes a qualitative look at factors influencing FSL professionals and their decisions to stay or leave the profession. It represents some of the best research I've seen on the topic of retention and attrition in the FSL profession and highlights many of the challenges we've been talking about during Season 2 of the Dyad Podcast. Her dissertation should be required reading not only for FSL professionals, but for those who supervise FSL professionals. So, if you haven't had a chance to read Bianca's research yet, stop and go read it now before listening further. I'll post a link in the show notes and on Dyad Strategy's social media. Shameless plug, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Bianca is someone I've known and respected for years in the profession, and so I was really excited to have her on the show. All right, Bianca Williams, welcome to the Dyad Podcast. So excited to have you here today. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I uh, I uh, really enjoyed reading your dissertation. Let me start by saying that I read a good bit of research. I read a lot of dissertations. Uh, I'm on the Oracle editorial board, as you are, and 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 you know as well as I do that some of the some of the things that cross your desk aren't that great. Uh, and, and in particular, I'm I'm maybe a little harsher on some qualitative research because good qualitative research is really good, and and bad qualitative research is really bad. And and your research is really good. So I'll start by saying, anyone who has not read Bianca's dissertation. Uh, Go read it. Uh, I'll I'll post the the link to the dissertation in the in the link uh, with the show. It's really really good. Uh, and and so just excited that you're able to come on and talk to us. And and I guess should start off by congratulating you on winning the the dissertation of the year award. That was uh, that was a really exciting honor. It had to be. Absolutely. I'm still very, very feeling very humbled. Um, thank you so much, by the way, for the, the comments that you mentioned about my dissertation. Um, I was really, really careful with how I wrote it. Um, part of it was because I, I needed to advocate on behalf of the fraternity sorority profession um, on a campus based perspective. Uh, part of it is because, frankly, it's who I am and I don't like to send out stuff that's halfway done. <laughs> um, and I think the, the, the other pieces, um, it you know, it is research that hasn't necessarily been explored um, that needed to be done well so that it could be used. Bianca, what motivated you to take on this idea of retention and attrition in, in FSL as your as your dissertation topic? Yeah, so as somebody who has finished a dissertation, you're probably going to think I'm absolutely crazy with what I'm about to tell you. <laughs> um, so I sat at the AFA annual meeting in 2015 and listened to the preliminary results um, of the AFA membership survey um, that talked about what attrition and retention looked like within the profession. Fashion. It gave us the numbers. Um, and I felt so strongly about going down the rabbit hole with that, that I actually changed my entire dissertation topic. I was, when, when that happened, I was in the last semester of coursework and I, I had 
a draft proposal for another topic done. Um, and so I sat there and I was just like, what am I doing with my dissertation? Like, this is what's truly, truly needed. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the end of the day, like that, that, pro- that uh, presentation um, and in the report that was released in 2016, that gave us the numbers, but we didn't know the why. Yep. Um, and, and when you want to do advocacy, that's where the advocacy resides for the functional areas and the why. And we needed more than anecdotes too, because mm-hmm. that's what higher level administrators need is the data, right? Um, I, I love fraternity and sorority life. And I think the students we work with deserve sustainability. They deserve good resources and people who care about their well-being. But it's difficult to provide those things when the functional area itself is so under-resourced. And so I felt that the functional area needed to have good, solid research that could also spawn additional research ideas to provide a full picture of what's needed in the functional area so that we can set it up for success. Um, So the way that I approach my dissertation is it was never meant to be put on a shelf. Mm-hmm. It was something that needed to essentially come off the shelf and the results were something that needed to be done something with. Like go on the Dyad podcast and talk about them. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> or, you know, put some articles out there about it, that kind of thing. Are yes. you are you working on some publications right now? I am. So I've, I've spent some time um, doing some things for Essentials, the AFA um, magazine that, that have essentially focused on um, my dissertation results. So that's mm. been one way that I've put results out there. I am currently working um, on Oracle <laughs> um, things. Always a then, good time. Yes, absolutely. Particularly when I got an email from um, Brian Joyce, the chair of the professional development committee or the research committee, sorry, asking me, hey, you know, we read your dissertation. Great job. Why don't you put something out there <laughs> for this? And I was like, yes, I will. Certainly. I so found... I'm- I found that publishing from my dissertation was harder than actually doing the dissertation, like taking, yes. taking it all a, a, you know, what, you know, is a 200 page dissertation and then yes. boiling that down into a 20 to 30 page research article was incredibly difficult. Right. And I have so much data that it is hard to, like, I, I want it to be coherent and with all the data that I have that supports so many things, it's kind of like, well, where, you know, where do I go from here? So I'm, I'm getting some coaching from some folks who have done this before um, and are, are going to work with me to help me in, in putting that out there. Um, but I, but I want to do it right. I, again, I'm not the type of person to put things out that are, that are done halfway or that are not done well. Um, I want to do it right. And so my goal though, is not just to focus on the fraternity sorority publications, um, because the folks who need to read this is, is not the folks who are members of the association for the most part, it's the folks who, who are, um, you know, your, your NASPA readers or your ACPA journal readers, um, or even just general um, education publications. And so I'm looking at some of those publications as well, too, um, because it's important that in particular our higher level administrators read read these things. The people supervising FSL, which was one of the big things that came out in your research and, and and definitely want to talk about that. I love that you started, as a lot of folks know, I'm not the biggest Simon Sinek fan, but good qualitative research, I think usually starts with, we know what, we've got some quantitative data, but we don't know why, right? And so when you when you know about the phenomenon, you're aware of its existence, but you don't understand why it's going on. 
and you're seeking to explain. And so a lot of the, I think some of the best research that Josh and I have done has been mixed methods, but the sequential explanatory strategy where we gather data, we know what's going on. And then we go in and we do the qualitative stuff to find out why, why is this happening? And, and especially when you can compare two groups of people like you did, these are the people who have persisted in the field and have been doing this work for seven, eight years. Uh, here is a group of people who left after a couple of years What's what what are the differences between these two groups of people? I think it's so illuminating when that's the type of question and the type of comparative analysis you're able to do. Yeah. And, and that was really, really purposeful because, you know, it, it's great that we know why people have stayed. But the the, the issue is people are leaving the functional area. And so let's understand why they're leaving, what's happening, and how do we make sure that we um, work on strategies that stop that attrition from happening, or that at least mitigate that attrition some, right? We, I also recognize that people are not going to all be fraternity sorority lifers. They're going to move on and they're going to do, you know, things either in other functional areas or outside of higher education or in a higher education adjacent, or they're going to hopefully move up the ranks of, you know, a student affairs role. Um, But it is important that we understand, okay, how do we mitigate this? Because what, what is happening is, is very much a um, revolving door feel, right? Like, you know, in two years, we're going to get a new coordinator in two years, you know, or in five years, we'll get, you know, a new assistant director, that kind of thing. And so what we need is, is to essentially slow um, that, that turnover, but understanding why people are staying is also part of, of getting the answer. And so for me, it's funny that you mentioned mixed methods because at the beginning, I was like, well, maybe I should do mixed methods. And then I, I thought about it. And I'm like, but wait, AFA already gave us that. Exactly. Like, why do I need to, to do that? Let me concentrate on, on the why. Um, and so I think what I was able to do is provide a comprehensive view of what is needed in order to keep folks um, and what is needed in order to um, slow down that attrition piece. And it's you're, you're so right, Bianca, in that ultimately this has to do with the experience, that constant churn on campus is at least part of the reason why so many communities at so many schools are struggling, right? I mean, because we do not have any sort of consistent approach uh, to, to how we're advising, supporting these communities. There's a constant churn of people with their own agendas and their own things they're interested in and long-term viability, long-term change initiatives are just, they're just not happening, right? Because Absolutely. of this constant attrition in the field. As I read your study, <clears throat> I was particularly interested in the differences you found between those two groups, right? You, 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 you interviewed about 25 people around half of which had been in the field and, and, and in FSL and persisted for at least seven or eight mm-hmm. years. Uh, and then another group of people who had worked in the field and then left after a couple of years. Uh, and the theme that jumped off the page at me, uh, because it's so consistent with so much of what I see when I go around and work with campuses and external reviews and just, just kind of my general observations of the field uh, had to do with the the inability of the the group of folks who left the field to develop the meaningful relationships that they felt like they needed to be successful in their role. Those who stay really felt like they had those meaningful relationships with with volunteers, with other folks on campus, uh, and those who burned out and left felt like they were constantly 
uh, in conflict with those people and really struggled to build those relationships. Uh, and in your recommendations, you very astutely pointed out that for a lot of FSL professionals, building and maintaining those relationships, is, it's an afterthought. Uh, it really needs to be prioritized. It reminded me of an external review I was doing a couple years ago and I had a young FSL say, it's not my job to help you know, recruit and, and train and support chapter advisors. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? Like, those are maybe the most crucial people for your success, but they did not see that as part of their role uh, at all. And, and, and I thought you nailed that in, when you got to the recommendations uh, in your chapter five. Tell me more about what you learned, particularly, again, with, with that group of people who left and their inability to, to build and maintain those, those relationships with some of those stakeholders. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it was a, so, so in a nutshell, having those relationships makes the FSA's job easier, right? Um, and so what I found is that those who were able to do it, it, it was also a rewarding part of their role. But we have a tendency as a student affairs profession to jump to the students, mm -hmm. right? So whether it's their behavior, their successes, their movement, and making that a marker for success. Um, however, the fraternity sorority functional area is different in that we do have all of these different relationships that we need to make sure that we are maintaining um, and that we, we're using as part of our toolkit um, for, for success. And so um, the participants in the study, they, they talked about how having solid relationships with advisors, with national organizations, um, whether it's volunteers or headquarters, staff members, and with uh, campus partners, assisting them in doing their job better because they felt like they weren't doing the work alone. Um, and I think that that's part of what hinders is that there's a feeling of so much pressure of, oh, I have to do this, this, and this. These are the expectations that are placed on me. And if I don't do them, then I'm not making a difference. Um, so when you have others that are part of your, your formula of success, um, folks felt that they had somebody who had their back. Um, whether it's to provide consistent messaging to students or whether it's to provide resources or expertise that were needed that the FSA didn't have time to do or make happen because, again, fraternity sorority advisors are, are all over the place um, as it relates to the work that they do. Not one, one day is not the same as the other. Um, so when fraternity sorority advisors realize that they don't have to do this work alone and that they shouldn't, um, they start seeing how they can essentially, like, what are the areas that they can be um, successful in or effective in um, because there's only so many hours in the day that to get everything done in, right? And you can't um, be everywhere, right? And no, so you it's can't. like you, you've got to build an army of people who are on the same page and, 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 and on the same message that you are uh, and gosh, those volunteers can be such an asset. And, and I see so many FSL advisors with adversarial relationships or no relationships at all with those people. And, and they really struggle. They burn out so much more quickly. Well, and, and I will also say this, um, some of the, um, particularly in the attrition group, they talked about how in some cases it, it was alum, alumni or advisors that actually hindered their ability to, yeah. to make success happen. So I think about, for example, one of um, the participants, um, 
her, her pseudonym is Eliza, um, who, by the way, she is a damn good FSA. I loved like, your names, really by the good. way. Can I say there was a tiger in there? Um, really good job picking your uh, your pseudonyms for your for your participants. So, so, so just just to be very transparent, some of them they picked on their own. Some of them, when I had uh, the ability to pick, are are related to Hamilton and American Musical, which is uh-huh. my favorite yeah. uh, my favorite thing of all time. Did, was um, Tiger self selected, or did you pick that one? That, nope, that was a self-selected one. Okay, now so now now I'm going to try and go back and reread and guess who I think Tiger might be. <laughs> you have fun. Uh, this with is that. gonna be a fun little game. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, going going back to Eliza, um, she talked about how she faced misogyny as she was trying to shift culture um from advisors and from alumni, particularly within the the IFC umbrella. Um, and so it was one of those things where it's like, I'm putting all of myself into this work. I'm trying very, very hard to shift this culture, which by the way, is an expectation from my institution. And I'm trying to role model for the staff that I oversee this, you know, that how to do this, but I'm coming home and feeling really, really worn out or questioning, why am I doing this when I'm being treated the way that I am because I'm a woman, right? So, so I think about those those are the instances that are causing folks to have a hard time building and maintaining those relationships. Um, or I think about, you know, I know that we've talked a, a lot about advisors um, in that relationship, but campus partners are also so, so extremely important um, in bringing this work to life. And so Charles, he talked about how it's expected for him to bring campus partners into the fold for programming and expertise. But when you do that, some campus partners don't want to do the work or the work that they do um, doesn't necessarily hit the nail on the head in the way he needs it to. So that again, it shifts culture. And so it's hard to want to maintain relationships with folks who are just not being reciprocal in that relationship. Absolutely. And I think about so often when I, I read good research, I reflect on my own experience and I, you know, I was FSL, you know, director of Greek life at at Alabama for several years Mm -hmm. and I benefited there from having a supervisor who had those relationships. Uh, They had been at the university for a long time and they knew everyone Uh, and, and, and those relationships were so helpful to me because she was able to help me navigate those politics uh, and and build those relationships and made it clear to me from from day one that those people were essential to my success, that I could not be successful in my role. I could not move the community where we needed it to move unless I had those relationships. And, 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 and that goes back to, you know, connecting some of the dots in your research. Now you talked a good bit about supervision. And when I look at supervisors and the role that they can play, helping build and navigate those relationships, helping those, you know, sometimes younger staff understand the importance of building and maintaining those relationships is something that's really critical for supervisors to do. And again, in the work that I do, I don't always see that happen. There are definitely places where it does happen, but there are a lot of places where the person supervising that FSL functional unit has no relationship at all with, with those people and, and isn't interested in building those relationships. And so that, that trickles down. And I, and I saw that really shine through in your research. 
Yeah. So one of the, if, if I could, if there was one piece of the research that I would say is the most important for us to focus on is that supervision relationship. Uh, that over and over and over again is what makes and breaks whether somebody wants to stay in the fraternity sorority functional area or not. Um, because even folks who left for personal reasons or whatever, they, they told me I would have stayed, you know, because of the supervision that I was getting, the support that I was getting, those kind of things. So it is crucial. Um, but I, but I agree with you, um, you know, those who supervise fraternity and sorority life, it is important that they stay in touch with the, with the functional area, with the office in particular. It's important that when a new director comes into the picture, that they help them in establishing those relationships. It's not enough to tell that new director, hey, you know, here's a list of folks that you should meet. <laughs> you should email all these chapter advisors. Right. Email all these chapter advisors or, or my favorite is, Hey, build relationships. That's an expectation that I have of you. Okay. Mm. But, but with whom and who are the important players for me to be aware of? Right. And so being very deliberate in how that supervisor is making those introductions, being deliberate in providing context for here's the, the political nature of this institution and here's the politics that need to be navigated. Being deliberate in making sure that, you know, you let them know, hey, these are advisors that we have just not had a good relationship with, that we need to have a good relationship with because we see the correlation in how the chapter behaves or in how the chapter yep. um, is showing up, right? So, so just... I know I've said deliberate like five times already, but just being deliberate in the supervision that is provided to the FSA truly sets them up for success. Clear my throat here. Bianca, one of the things that that I thought of as I was reading your dissertation, I was were you at the NIC town hall at uh, the annual meeting? I was not, unfortunately. Oh, you missed a great show. It was a good time. Um, it. It reminded me, you know, there were so many young professionals, uh, I'll say, and, 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 and part of me sympathizes with them, but part of me, it's like, you know, okay, this is, this is your job to, you know, basically they were upset and mad at Judd because they didn't have good relationships with some of the advisors on campus, like the NIC, it's their role to go in and make sure that there are no bad advisors out there or people who are maybe a, a little misogynistic, right? I mean, you, you mentioned that reference. So, you know, the I see this political divide, right? And I've written about this a little bit before, just in the blog, not, not any published research, but just kind of hypothesizing and speculating that part of at least what's driving this, this, this gulf is, is, is the culture war. And I talked mm -hmm. about this even in the last episode with, with Justin in particular, Justin Kirk, who's the executive director at DU and obviously works with a lot of volunteers, that a lot of campus-based FSAs are young, progressive, liberal, right? And, and that's the lens through which they see the world. A lot of, at least on the IFC side and you know on the Panhellenic side as well, older, white, conservative, right? And, and, and view the world very differently, prioritize things very differently. Did you uncover any of the, the why behind that? Did you get into any of the, you know, kind of the navigation of that political gulf and, and how much that plays into the struggle 
that that some FSL professionals have with building those relationships? Like how much does just the culture war play into that? Because I, I see that a lot and it, it came out in full force at the, the NIC town hall at, at AFA just a few months ago. Yeah, I mean, I think so. So navigating politics in general was one of the themes um, of, of my dissertation. Um, and I think that, you know, some of the things that you mentioned, it, it is important for us to recognize that there there are generational differences yep. um, in, in my opinion, it is important that the nations recognize those generational differences and actually through training or through, you know, different educational, um, uh, uh, you know, different educational programmings that they are providing, that they are working with their volunteers to recognize those generational differences. Yep. But I think too, it is important for FSAs to be trained and to understand how do you navigate those pieces as well? Um, you know, I think we need to, to keep in mind um, that we have to do everything possible to set the students up for success. Um, and so there's, a, there's a, a give and take there in that, and, and I'm someone who is very progressive. Um, but I also recognize that there, there is a give and take there. I'm not going to tolerate certain comments or anything like that, but I also know that I need to address those pieces in a way, um, that helps that person who may be giving that message understand, Hey, um, Ooh, Bianca doesn't stand for that. That's against her values, that kind of thing, but doesn't, um, you know, push that person away. Absolutely. Right. And so how do we make sure that that those things are happening? So so at the end of the day, it is important for the national organizations to provide education and to make sure that they are providing expectations um, to advisors or to alumni that are working um, with with chapters, Um, because the other piece to keep in mind is the demographics of of our chapters are changing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what is also happening is that that old school mindset is also pushing our members away. Um, and so at the end of the day, if we keep pushing our members away, then are we going to be relevant and are we going to be sustainable as organizations? Absolutely. Um, so, so there are some pieces to, to keep in mind there. So kind of going back to, to the research, um, FSAs, unfortunately, are not taught what politics are or how to navigate the politics prior to coming into full-time work. Um, It's almost like it's treated like a dirty word in student affairs. Um, So we don't have a tendency to tackle it head on, but politics are very much alive and well in the fraternity sorority context, um, particularly because of the large number of constituents that we work with in the functional area. Um, And so talking politics um, is not a part of the onboarding processes. It's not a part of the training that FSAs are receiving. And so that's having an effect, Um, which is interesting because, you know, there's this expectation that politics are dealt with. um, But what's happening is we're not seeing it be a true, true expectation until you're at the director level. But if we are not teaching how to deal with politics early on in your career, mm-hmm. then how are you expected to deal with it at the director level? Um, 
it's almost like we're trying to shield younger professionals from having to even deal with it or even or even be aware of it to some extent. Correct. And so it needs to be like we we have to face the politics piece head on. We have to make sure that folks are, you know, aware of it. But I think the other piece is is helping, you know, professionals understand there's human rights and then there's politics. And you can be very, very um, passionate about the human rights pieces, mm-hmm. but the political pieces are also there. And so you have to be savvy about how you navigate it. You have to understand how to navigate it and make sure that you are doing that as well. And I don't think when I look at professional development, you know, Jason Bergeron, if you're listening, I don't think we're hitting on that nearly enough at all in, 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 in terms of our uh, when I look at programmatic offerings, things we're talking about, my favorite anecdote, and I shared this with you earlier before we started recording, but I'll, I'll share it again here. Uh, my business partner, research partner, Josh Schutz, got a grant from the AFA Foundation to study specifically political skill within the profession, right? People's perceptions and self-efficacy around their ability to navigate those politics, surveyed a bunch of, of FSAs, has the data, is in the process of getting it published up, submitted it as a program proposal for the annual meeting and it got rejected and, and some genius on the program review committee said in the comments, I don't see how this is relevant to the field. And, and Josh and I were like, what? You don't see how navigating politics is relevant to the field. And I read your dissertation and I was like, well, clearly that program reviewer has not read Bianca's dissertation. Otherwise they would know that this is in fact very relevant because the inability of, of professionals to navigate that complexity of relationships and the, the pull and tug of what all these various stakeholders are looking for, it's driving people who, who could be good professionals uh, away from the field. Uh, the, this inability or unwillingness, I don't know if it's an inability or just I, I don't want to do it, I don't want to deal with it, I just want to come in and do my own thing and damn the torpedoes, I'm, I'm going to force my own agenda through regardless of what other people think. And then two years later, they're sitting around scratching their head wondering, why does everyone hate me? Why can't I get anything done? It's because they, they never bothered to, to even try to, to navigate those politics. Yeah. And, and, and I think, again, I, I see the whole issue with politics as a whole student affairs thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like it is just not something that is taught Um, well in, in the student affairs profession. And so that permeates into those areas that do have to hit it, you know, head on. Um, And so it it is something that we do need to spend some time talking through. We definitely need to educate about it and we need to provide folks an opportunity to understand how to practice it Um, in recognizing that. And I think as I, listen to the the participants one of the things that that there was a feeling of is am i losing myself and my values mm-hmm. when i play the political game and i don't think folks like have to do that like you don't have to choose your values over the political game at least i, I know on the on a day to day i don't do that you know i i mentioned a little bit ago like when I disagree with you, you're going to know that I disagree with you. You're going to understand why I disagree with you. And you're also going to understand my values based on what I'm telling you um, and what my non-negotiables are. But I think that there is still a way to be able to put that in there and still make, 
you know, a good relationship with that person, um, regardless of it. And, and I think that that's the, the fine line that is missed is this piece of, well, I have to lose myself in the political game. And, and I will tell you, I, I used to think that way and sure. I've had some good professional development experiences. Um, huge shout out to the NASPA Escaleras Institute, because that was one of the places that helped me understand like, no, you don't have to lose yourself. You can continue to be you. Um, it's just in the approach that you take in being you um, that that you need to think about as you're navigating the political um, you know, spectrum. Um, I think the other pieces, you know, folks tend to use political game and having to play the game. Mm-hmm. I try not to do that. I try to reframe it because when I use the, the game, quote unquote, um, that's where it starts to feel slimy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that a lot of professionals are also trying to figure that that slimy piece out. Well, I don't want to be slimy. You don't have to be. You can be your authentic self. It's just, again, in how you approach it and how you have the conversation and, and how you help others understand where you're coming from, what is happening and the effects that it has on the community. So that it's not about your agenda. It's about, again, how do we progress the community? Yep. What, what Jonathan Hyde and some of his work would call moral humility, right? Like understanding I have my way of viewing the world and, and I think that I'm right, but I have to approach this conversation with the humility of this other person has their way that they see the world and they think they're right. Right. And so this is not about a game that I have to win. This is just about seeking first to understand, right? And, and right. It, it requires some humility to be able to do that. Absolutely. I was particularly amused by the, um, the, the anecdote in your research from Simone about um, feeling like she was constantly in conflict. And, and this, is, this is all connected, right? I mean, mm-hmm. relationships, politics, this idea of conflict, but it it particularly struck me because of speaking of Jonathan Haidt, some of the work that he and Greg Lukianoff have done, Coddling of the American Mind, one of the best books I've read in the last five years. Any student affairs professional who hasn't read it, you need to add it to your list. It, it should be required reading that this generation of, of students, uh, this post-millennial generation, and really even getting into the latter half of the millennial generation, uh, really struggle to navigate conflict. Uh, and we've got mm-hmm. more and more in those more and more of those young professionals entering the field who have that inability to navigate conflict. It's a side effect of how they were raised. It's a side effect of helicopter parenting. Because of helicopter parents, children and adolescents of this generation got much less uh, of what psychologists refer to as unsupervised, unstructured playtime. So always parents around or, you're by yourself in your room on a computer or video game. Because of this, as children and adolescents, this generation has less experience resolving conflict. And then, you know, they come to school and we put them in fraternities and sororities and we say, okay, self-govern, hold each other accountable. They don't do that as well yeah. as they used to because they, they don't know how to, to, to resolve conflict. And okay. now we're seeing this trickle into the profession, right? That you've got these young professionals who feel like they're constantly at odds with people and they don't know how to resolve that conflict. And, and, and I, it had never occurred to me. I've talked about this a lot as it relates to the fraternity and sorority experience and self-governance and accountability. Not until I read your dissertation did it occur to me that, well, of course, this is now trickling into the profession. So now not only do we have fraternity and sorority members who can't navigate conflict, 
We have fraternity and sorority advisors who can't navigate conflict. Talk to me a little bit about that theme in particular. And, and do you think that's something as a profession we need to start training towards is, is helping young professionals deal with and, and learn to navigate conflict? Because that, that just jumped off the page when I read it. Yeah. So, so first things first, um, what is interesting is navigating conflict is one of the NACE competencies. So as we're thinking about the competencies that employers want in the workplace from those that are graduating college, that is one of the NACE competencies. And so at the minimum, what we need to do as a student affairs profession and then within fraternity sorority life is take a look at those competencies and make sure that we are infusing that into the curriculum. So yep. at a minimum, that's kind of where, where I am with that. What is interesting is Simone um, is actually somebody who is um, a, a longer term professional. Interesting. Yeah. And so um, it is something that I don't think it's just those that are new to the profession. It, it, is, it permeates across. Um, the, the profession at all kinds of um, levels. And so I think what, what it boils down to based on you know, conversations that I was having is that the sad truth is we don't do a good job of preparation for the student affairs profession as a whole. We spend a lot of time educating about the history, the systems and structures of student affairs and the operational pieces, essentially the what of student affairs, but we don't concentrate on the how mm -hmm. of student affairs. And there's, there's this feeling of, well, that's what the assistantships are for, to teach you the how. Um, yes, but, <laughs> not, not a yes and, yes, but, um, if supervisors don't know how to do this themselves, then how are they going to teach and role model this on the job? And so it becomes just this downward spiral. Um, while it's important that we teach those operational pieces, um, we also need to do a good job or a better job of teaching the competencies needed to, to do the work. And I think about, you know, student affairs is supposed to be a pre-professional program, right? And so I think about, for example, lawyers, and I think about doctors. And yes, they are taught all of the overarching umbrella pieces, but they do a better job of focusing on the the you know, for example, if a lawyer wants to do constitutional law, then they do a good job of teaching them how to be a constitutional law lawyer, you know, or I think about a resident, you know, they're learning how to be emotionally intelligent on the job or those kind of things, but then they're also being taught in the day-to-day -day of their residency how to be a pediatric neurologist, right? And so I think that that's the approach that we, we need to think about is how do we essentially revamp how we do our pre-preparation program to help folks understand not just those, those what pieces, but also the how. Mm -hmm. I agree completely. Uh, and, and grad prep, I, we could do an entire episode. Maybe we will do an entire episode on graduate preparation programs. And I'd be happy to hop on that. And their <laughs> abject failure to adequately prepare professionals for the field. I, I do think that's one of the biggest challenges facing all of student affairs, not just FSL. And, and I think Absolutely. FSL maybe suffers more than others do uh, from, from the, the state of, of grad prep programs, but it's a 
it's a much bigger issue. Well, and it's it's related back to, you know, some of the results of my dissertation where what, you know, we talked about what is needed to be successful in fraternity and sorority life. And one of the things that folks said over and over again is you need deep knowledge. Like it is not just like, oh, how to do this, how to do that. It is like, how do you do like 30 different things <laughs> um, in fraternity and sorority life? That That is what's needed. And so the knowledge goes beyond, um, you know, how do you do, you know, um, Panhellenic recruitment or how do you, you know, uh, create educational programs um, that are focused on membership growth, right? Like it's beyond that. It's these pieces of the political nature of the work. It's this pieces of how do you navigate conflict? It's the building and maintaining relationships. Those are not things that are taught in student affairs programs. Yep. And, and, and then you show up with one of these jobs and, you know, if you're a hall director, the politics you have to navigate are minimal. You've got a boss, you've got some RAs, you've got maybe a hall council, pretty easy politics to navigate. But if you're going into FSL, right? I mean, golly, it's some, it's, I, I, it's some of the hardest work in not even student affairs, any campus, one of the hardest jobs I think is a, is a director of fraternity and sorority life. And so, we got to figure out a better way to, to do that. And I don't know if it's through the graduate assistantship programs and, and how we're setting those students up for success. Uh, I don't know if it's the graduate prep programs. I, I don't know the answer, but I, it's a question we need to be asking. One of the other themes that you identified that I really wanted to get a chance to explore, because it's something I've been on the warpath about recently is, and I was so happy to see it in your research because it confirmed a lot of what I was thinking, that one of the reasons that people are leaving are these feelings of frustration that they're not moving the needle, that they're not making an impact. Uh, and I think mm -hmm. this is so important. I think it may be the most important thing in our industry right now, because I think we've done such a poor job defining what the metrics for success are even supposed to look like. And so not only do people feel like they're not making an impact, they don't even have any way of knowing whether or not the things they're doing are making a difference because there are no solid metrics in place. I wrote about the McNamara fallacy with this idea that we just uh, you know, gravitate onto whatever data is easiest to collect and that data becomes more important. Yep. So we look at recruitment stats and we look at GPA and we look at community growth and those are terrible metrics to look at to measure the success of what you're doing as a co-curricular, you know, office trying to advance student development and student learning. And so, but we just, mm -hmm. we just latch onto these things and, and your research really highlighted this, this frustration that professionals have, particularly those who are leaving, feeling like they're not able to make a difference, feeling like they're not moving the needle uh, how do we need to redefine the way we think about and, and measure what success looks like in, in the FSL profession specifically? Absolutely. And so I think the part of the problem is that there is no shared language in what success is, right? And so I think that that's where, where we need to start. Um, but then the other piece is how do we truly focus on outcomes, right? What are, as a result of being a member of a fraternity or sorority, here are the things that I'm learning. Here are the things that I'm doing. Here are the things that I'm carrying with me um, to my career, 
Um, and so, so really thinking about those pieces, how are we tying essentially to the, the mission of higher education as a whole, and how are we aligning that mission to the purpose of fraternity and sorority life? So if we create shared language around those pieces, I think we have the ability to be able to move the industry forward and to have true measurable outcomes. But, but I agree with you, we do go to the easy stuff because that's what we have the time to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we need to also do as a profession is, is shift how we're spending our time um, in, in thinking about how do we balance the time that we're spending with students or with different constituents with the time that we are spending, frankly, by ourselves, creating the things that are going to move the needle forward. Mm-hmm. Um we are so consumed on the day-to-day with meetings or with demands that we're getting from higher ups because of frankly brand management and making sure that we're protecting the brand of the institution that one we're on not ones thinking- with one-on-ones with the panelinic treasurer <laughs> or yeah or, or different <laughs> things like that right so how are we making sure that we are also thinking about the broader scope of higher education and again the the mission what is supposed to be realized where, you know, it should be happening within higher education, which right now it's, it's very much student success, right? So how yeah. are we increasing the, the retention, the graduation rates, and then the career readiness of students um, and making sure that, that we are creating outcomes around those areas so that we can move that forward. But I think fraternity and sorority life as a really great opportunity for a learning laboratory also provides, you know, additional pieces um, that are not necessarily just focused on career readiness, but really just how to be a good human in general um, that we also need to infuse in there. Because I think I would be remiss to say that institutions of higher education, um, they, they want more than retention, graduation, and career readiness, they, they want to produce good humans who are going to do good things. Um, and so we have a really great opportunity there to make sure that we're relating back to that. Um, but if we are all on different pages about what all of that means, then what's going to happen is it's going to make it harder for us to be able to get to those metrics. So that yep. shared language is so important. So important. And I love that you mentioned this idea of how we spend our time and where we spend our time and who we spend our time with. And I am, I am regularly amazed. And I, I mean, regularly amazed mm-hmm. when I work with campuses at the, the way that FSL professionals prioritize their time. They're spending a majority of their student interaction time in one-on-one meetings with students who have maybe the least impact on those metrics for success, right? I, I am, I'm regularly amazed that, yeah, I have weekly one-on-ones with all the IFC officers. And then you talk to chapter presidents and advisors and others about the role and influence of IFC and it's none, it's zero. The, the meetings are a joke. We don't do anything. Nothing is Nothing that is ever done or discussed at those meetings is important. If anyone even bothers to to show up and if they do show up to, to, to open their mouth and talk about anything. So we're investing all this time and energy with students who have maybe very little voice in their chapter, right? The, the reason I'm a Panhellenic officer is because I didn't get elected to the executive board in my chapter or, or with an IFC or, you know, NPHC council that just 
they're not that important in the work that we do. But you look at, I will often have professionals just do a pie chart of how they spend their time. Mm-hmm. 30, 40, 50% of their time in one-on-ones with council officers. That That's where their time is being spent. And the, and the dividend on that time is zero <laughs> or very close to zero. Right. Uh, and I, this is, you and I are both graduates of the gathering. And I know this is one of the things that that, that program really focuses on. So I'll give a shameless plug. Mm-hmm. They are really helping professionals in the field think through how you can spend your time with the right people, having the conversations that will really move the needle and moving beyond. Yeah, I have weekly one-on-ones with all my council officers because that's just on a lot of campuses. I'm not going to say everywhere. There's some very influential IFCs out there. There's some very influential Panhellenic councils that do really good work. But but for the most part, those groups aren't doing very much, if anything at all, to really change the culture and focus on some of those metrics that, that you were talking about. Yet that's where we're seeing professionals spend an overwhelming amount of their time. Well, and I think that that so so one of the pieces that we also need to do within the fraternity sorority functional area um, is so so that is what I call the old school way of doing fraternity sorority. And we unfortunately, um, I I think we're seeing it more and more as we um, put together things like chapter coaching models and those kind of things. Um, but that shift is happening slower than, mm-hmm. than it needs to. And so that's part of what, what we need to do is reassess as an entire functional area is how should you be spending time? Because I think that part of the reason why folks don't know, you know, that they should be spending more time with say, chapter officers or advisors or, you know, whomever is that they have not been told that that's the way we need to shift Mm -hmm. the fraternity sorority functional area. And so the other piece is those that are supervised. So I I go back to the supervision piece, right? Mm -hmm. Those that are supervising fraternity sorority life haven't caught on to that shift as well. And so we need to do some education overall about what fraternity sorority shifts need to look like and make sure that that those that are supervising the area understand that shift and expect that shift and those that are doing the work on the ground also understand that um, without feeling like they're not going to have the impact because I think we tie um, the impact that we have a lot to what we see the students do Um, or what we hear the students say. And so we need to, so so this goes back to the conversation we we just had about the metrics, just that alignment of, okay, where are we supposed to go? What's this supposed to look like? And how do we make it happen on a day-to-day basis? Absolutely. So good research leads to as many questions as answers. And this is really good research. So what's What's next, right, for you and in your research agenda? Where does it go from here? What are the new questions that this research illuminated and, and how do we need to go about answering them? Yeah, great question. So one of the things that I did, so this is a pro tip for those of you who are, who are doing dissertations. As you are crunching the data, have um, a document where you are asking questions about, oh, this is still, un, you know, like, this wasn't said or it was said, but it was kind of not quite there or, oh, but 
this answer leads me to this question, like Mm -hmm. do that because that'll actually make, you know, the, your, your last chapter be more robust. Um, and so that, that is one of the things my chapter five is, is pretty robust in like, where do we take this research? So, um, my research agenda right now is going to focus on, um, the the supervision piece right and and what i'd love to do is frankly create a guided theory for how you supervise the fraternity sorority functional area um other pieces that i'd love to work on is um looking at president vice president what are their views of fraternity sorority life and how it relates to the mission um, of the institution? What is it that they are concerned about as it relates to fraternity sorority life? What is it that they would like to see for fraternity and sorority life? Because we have a tendency and the students do this a lot is they say, well, XYZ institution hates us. Well, where do you get that from? You know, <laughs> where's that coming from? Um, and so I think it's important that we we put out there like here's the true re- like the true feelings from those that make the decisions about you know the the functional area or where the institution needs to go. Here's how they're feeling, you know, about fraternity sorority life. Um, the other piece is this this preparation piece. Um, of how do we prepare folks to be successful in the fraternity sorority life functional area? Um, that's something that that I really really like to look at. Um, so that related to this, but to be completely honest with you, there's a whole other area that I want to focus on, and it's actually more focused on on the students. Um, and that is, um, I, I'm a Latina, and so making sure that our voice is heard is important. And so I'm looking at, I also wanna look at the um, experiences of Latinas um, in organizations that are not Latina based, right? Mm -hmm. So what is a woman who's a a Latina facing in a Panhellenic world? What's a Latina who, you know, goes uh, and and becomes a member of an MPHC organization? What does that look like for them? And so Mm -hmm. so looking at at those pieces too, Um, because that's the one thing it's like, yes, I I love this work about the profession. Um, And trust me that that I think is something that is uplifting me and making me excited. But there's other pieces of of interest that I have that I want to explore down um, that, you know, down the, the road. So that's kind of where I'm at with next steps. Very cool. Well, you're doing great work. Uh, love the dissertation. And again, folks, if you've not read it, uh, I'll post a link to it when we drop the the show out there on, on social media. It, it's really well done. It's important. Uh, I, and my hope is that not only does it guide your research agenda, but but that some of those other questions guide the, the research agenda of others. There are several good people out here asking some of these questions uh, about the profession and about the folks who are doing the work and how they're doing the work. And I think it's really important research uh, as, as, as this profession evolves, right, from, from adolescence into adulthood. And, and, and we begin to answer some of those more difficult questions in terms of what matters, what moves the needle, uh, how should this work be getting done? What is a best practice? Just because everyone does it, uh, you know, common practice does not necessarily equate to best practice. And so I think your, I think your research is really shining a light in an important area. So really appreciate the, the great dissertation. And uh, thanks for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed getting a chance to talk. 
Thank you so much, Gentry. Really, really appreciate our time together. Thank you for making space um, for this conversation too, because, you know, as I mentioned, like, I don't need for my dissertation to sit on a shelf. We need to put this information out there so that we can actually do something about it. And so um, I, I often call my dissertation, here's my love letter to the profession. And the reason I call it that is because I want something to be done with the results. And so um, thank you for making the space. And um, I look forward to um, more continued conversations. Bianca's dissertation is important research. It really highlights some of the factors that are driving people away from the field. It's not all about money or stress. There are a lot of stressful jobs out there. There are tangible things that FSL professionals can do to make this work less stressful, and her research really illuminates some of those things. Building meaningful relationships, navigating the politics, working through conflict in healthy and productive ways, these are all critical skills that will be important in determining how successful campus fraternity and sorority advisors will be in their roles. This is the stuff that will bridge the trust gap that we talked about in the last episode. When we refocus on the relationships and apply more intentionality around navigating difficult politics, the fraternity and sorority experience will improve and stakeholders will see more value in the work that we do. An old boss of mine used to say, relationships are all that we have. As hokey and cliche as I thought those words of wisdom were at the time, Bianca's research really drives home the wisdom in those words. If we want to make a difference in our communities, relationships really are all that we have. You've been listening to the Dyad Podcast, produced by Dyad Strategies. Our theme music is composed by Magnus Moon. For more information, visit us online at www.dyadstrategies.com.